Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're back in the book of Acts. We're in the second chapter. We're actually going to start in 14. We got a very interesting discussion last week about the Schofield Notes, and then we started to get into Joel. And so Mark wants to get a little more into Joel for some background and as we as we do, we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Luke, would you open us with a word of prayer, please? Sure. Holy Father, we thank you so much for your spirit, the spirit that teaches us and guides us along, transforms us to become more like your son, Jesus. We thank you for this dynamic word, this powerful testament to your good works and your deeds throughout uh, human history. And uh, we pray for Mark, for uh, wisdom, and uh, for uh, peace on this Bible discussion, that uh, um, your, your uh, meaning and your truth will leap out from the uh, text and the words and uh, transform our hearts and refocus our minds. Thank you so much, Father, for your son, Jesus, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 Thank Amen. you. Good evening, Mark. Hi, Tom, and everyone. Uh, glad to be back with you. Uh, we've just started talking about uh, the second chapter of the book of Acts, and it's it's hard to overstress the importance of what's going on here in the context of, of Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Uh, Jesus Christ had been unlawfully executed, and... Uh, spiritually, while the earthly trials were taking place, he was spiritually being passed sentence to carry the weight of punishment of the sins of all uh, believers, past, present, and future, uh, on him. And uh, he carried that guilt and suffered uh, spiritual separation from God the Father uh, for our sins, which was the real punishment the physical trauma that he bore was uh, horrible, and we focus on that a lot, but I don't believe it comes close to the spiritual trauma that he suffered in becoming sin for our sakes. And this was God's plan. This was a necessary thing, as horrible as it was, because God's eternal purpose was to purify and redeem a people for his own possession 
that would become a living temple, a spiritual Jerusalem for him to dwell in uh, for eternity uh, here on earth among men. And so this is God's eternal purpose, and it is being fulfilled. All the hard work is now accomplished, and God's eternal purpose from before the Garden of Eden is being fulfilled in our hearing here in Acts chapter 2. And we quoted from Joel last week and, and explained that, but we're going to see that that nearly all of the prophets looked forward to this exact day that's occurring here in Acts chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's begin by uh, reading again Acts 2 verses 14 through 21, please. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, thank you. So... We looked uh, at some of the context of Joel. Now, just because we are told that this fulfills uh, this exact prophecy of Joel, it doesn't mean that it doesn't fulfill a lot of other prophecies as well. We, we looked at the end of the book of Luke and in Acts chapter 1, and we saw how Jesus had had opened the minds and eyes of the disciples to see how all of the prophets had spoken of that great work that he was to accomplish and the result. And we, we looked at a few of the passages that talked about the result of this great work of redemption uh, last time. But I want to just hit hit a few more so that we understand the critical importance of what's happening here on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And far from being a last-minute throw-together substitute for a kingdom which failed, we see that everything is taking place exactly as God had determined and that this was the working of a careful plan that could not be overturned by any force in all of creation. And again, this goes against uh, many modern uh, interpretations. Now, also in the way of review, Luke has added in the term 
the last days here uh, in in what we just read, and the original prophecy in Joel just said hereafter, not in the last days, but nearly all of the other prophets spoke of the last days, and all of the Judeans understood that the Messiah would arrive in the last days of their age, at the end of the age of the the temple and the law of Moses and so on and so forth. And so they they had a clear understanding. And we also saw in Acts chapter 1 how that restoring the kingdom to Israel was a very important part of this overall plan. And the after Christ had spent 40 days explaining this to the disciples, they asked him, are you ready now at this time, Lord, to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we noted how that nearly every commentator thinks that the apostles were still hopelessly confused or they wouldn't have asked a question. But I'm trying to make the case, uh, borrowed from my friend uh, Don Preston of Ardmore, Oklahoma, that that this is exactly what they were supposed to be doing is restoring the kingdom to Israel. And we looked at several prophecies in that regard last time. I'm going to go back and read a couple of these right now just to to try to drive this home. And, And again, there's 70 or 80 that I just found with just a cursory skimming of the um, Hebrew prophets. But in Jeremiah 31, we have the very famous promise of the new covenant that would be uh, created. But if we back up to uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 22, it says, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is after uh, condemning the people at that time for their faithlessness, their adult spiritual adultery and so on and so forth it's a promise of a restoration you shall be my people they weren't really his people he had never had their heart in verse 24 he says the fierce anger of the lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart in the last days you will consider it so this is the same last days these are the day the days of christ the apostles the day of the fulfillment of Joel, the day of the fulfillment of uh, all these promises in the prophets. Micah, we also read uh, a version of this in Micah last time. So God is going to do this, and he's not going to be thwarted. So any view of the Bible that God failed in his effort to set up the kingdom in the days of Christ and the apostles is, uh, in my mind, contradicting these promises either god is a false prophet by saying that he will do it and he will perform the intent of his heart in the last days or it really did happen when he said it would now nearly every present day theologian religious leader and most writers think that the last days are talking about the end of the physical universe uh, how this started I'm not really sure, but from the viewpoint of God, from his plan to redeem mankind, the last days of the physical universe are basically irrelevant. We we get this from a bad translation of Second Peter, where he talks about the elements being consumed in a fervent heat and so on, and we think, oh, it's talk about the end of the universe and fire. But that's not even what Peter was talking about there. 
Peter, in his letters, starts off both of them by reminding the readers of the promises of the Hebrew prophets. And they were, they were not concerned at all about the end of the physical universe. That didn't even register on their list of important things to worry about. They were concerned about the last days of physical Israel and the coming of Messiah and the, the promise of the resurrection, the hope of Israel. And this resurrection had kind of a twofold meaning. It was, it's the, the idea of eternal life to the individual, but it's also the resurrection of the kingdom of Israel. The, the prophecy of dry bones in Ezekiel uh, is not really talking about individual resurrection. It is talking about the nation of Israel being totally dead like dry bones and then being brought back to life by the Spirit of God uh, breathing on these corpses. And so the, in Paul's mind, in all of the apostles' mind, everything, the hope of Israel was the resurrection Jesus Christ was the resurrection personified, and his new body, which is a corporate body of believers, is now going to execute and announce the resurrection and the restoration of Israel as an accomplished fact. Mark, so uh, yes, I, I need to stop here because this dry bones story from Ezekiel is so much a part of the entire dispensational church. They claim that this was just just accomplished in 1948, and it's absolutely proof of the accuracy of the prophecy was that the state of Israel, because the state of Israel, Israel is referred to in the prophecy, and of course they simply say that the state of Israel was miraculously reconstructed from the bones of, of antiquity in 1948, and it's been accomplished in they would say, how can you deny this when we can look at the map and see it there or listen to the radio or see the television or see the wonders of the state of Israel accomplished right in front of our eyes? Yeah, well, that's, we, that's we talked a little bit about with. this last week that the fundamental point of difference in interpretation is the absolute refusal by anyone who follows the Schofield Notes to acknowledge the possibility that the resurrected Israel was going to be spiritual in nature. And, you know, we spent a lot of time going through the Gospel of John where Christ hammered this over and over and over again that my kingdom is not of this world. And so I don't know how you can reconcile, you know, that the physical state of Israel is a kingdom of this world, but it's still a kingdom not of this world. I, which reminds me of this little magazine blurb on uh, on Tel Aviv that I read on my way on my last business trip here. The city of Tel Aviv doesn't take itself too seriously. It is like a bubble in the rest of Israel. Of course, I don't know what percentage of the population lives there, but it's got to be a large percentage of the uh, whole population of the country. It is uh, full of buzzing nightclubs, restaurants, and coffee shops. It is liberal, gay-friendly, and constantly reinventing itself. Yeah, and somewhere over here it says, yeah, right here, 
The fun-loving vibe of its residents is earning the city a reputation. Lonely Planet included Tel Aviv in its top ten cities for 2011, noting that hedonism is the one religion that unites its inhabitants and dubbing it a modern sin city on the sea. So this is the dispensationalist fulfillment of God's eternal promise. I, I have problems with that because the bride that God was going to purify for his son is absolutely spotless. We have a perfect image of her at the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, she is a she is arrayed in white. She's adorned with pearls, and she's absolutely sinless and perfect. This was accomplished, of course, by the spiritual uh, suffering of Jesus Christ. And I, I just, in the modern state of Israel, there's a lot of good people that live there. But, I mean, as a overall society, it just doesn't measure up to this perfect image of, of God's pride and joy uh, that we find uh, in the Scripture. So, again, just if you didn't... The dispensational answer to that is the one you hear, you know, we've heard so many times. And that is, well, uh, of course, the Jews have fallen from God's grace and they're presently living a sinful life outside of God, but they will be yanked back and made to return in the final prophecy. We just can't worry about the fact that Tel Aviv is, the, is as sinful as Amsterdam. That, that would be the kind of a response you get back. And I think you answered my question before when you said, the, the New Testament provides the answers to this, because the New Testament, uh, the New Testament, John and and uh, and the apostles clearly do state that God meant this to be a spiritual kingdom, and uh, I, I, I think you answered the question well that we we just need to go to them, and and uh, it's, it's just difficult because people are so entrenched in this that they absolutely do believe. And they would have a hard time believing what you just said about Tel Aviv. Uh, there's another story out right now about two men who burned themselves to death in protest against the government of Israel. And uh, eight or nine more have tried to burn themselves to death. And the, and the police are now carrying fire extinguishers, and they're putting out people who try to burn themselves in protest uh, in, in Tel Aviv and in the other major cities of Israel because of the treatment by of the of the citizens by the government who is much more brutal toward its citizens than we ever have ever heard or know. But still those arguments are hard to put across to dispensationalists. Uh, they they give you trouble. Thanks. Yeah, well it. anyway, I I mean I frankly we're we're reading the beautiful fulfillment of God's plan and and the, these dispensations ideas just clutter up the water, you know, muddy the water and, and uh, really negate the beauty of God fulfilling his eternal purpose. Uh, you know, they may not ever listen. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I know it's really hard, but uh, I pray that, that something breaks through, that they realize the, the complete inconsistency of this view, the fact that it negates God's sovereignty his foreknowledge, his omniscience, 
it really waters down the God of the Bible uh, that that I read about and try to know. So I just have to leave that with them and uh, and just pity them and and pray for them. Now, the again to understand this true restoration of the true Israel, we have to again understand the the actual history of what happened. Israel was only a kingdom for a relatively short time from Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, his reign, then David, and then David's son Solomon. After that, the kingdom divided. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, went into apostasy immediately and got worse and worse and worse and was utterly destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in the 600s B.C., like 661 or something like that. And Jeremiah is written for instance, just after this. So at the time Jeremiah is writing, Judah is, is, a, is the remnant of Israel. All of the northern kingdom was carried away, and all but the inhabitants of Jerusalem in Judah were carried away uh, by the Assyrians. And that's the context in Jeremiah 30 when it's talking about the fierce anger of the Lord. And as it rolls into chapter 31, he's saying at the same time, which is the latter days of the verse before, at the same time, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And so we see this promise of a restoration coming at a time when Israel has been completely shattered and there is nothing left. And the book of Isaiah goes into gory detail, and we read a lot of that last week. Skipping down to verse 6, There shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. And Zion is the same symbolism. This is the mount that the temple is built on, and it is the, the emblem in the Hebrew prophets of the future bride of God, the perfect bride, the dwelling place for God on earth, Zion. And we'll, we see a consistency in all these promises. So Ephraim it was, was a hill up in the north country, and they didn't want to go down to Jerusalem in those days, so they just made their own worship up wherever they were. But in the last days, they will want to go up to Zion because God is there. For thus says the Lord, sing with the gladness for Jacob, Jacob is another name for Israel. Shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. I will gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with the child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim was a son of Joseph. His descendants became the most numerous people of Israel of the northern kingdom. And in the prophets, Ephraim is used as a synonym for the northern tribes of Israel who, who had been completely taken away 
Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles of far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the heights of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. For wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd, their soul shall be like a well-watered garden. They shall sorrow no more at all. And it continues on here. But you see, he's speaking as if this is already accomplished. But again, at the time this was written, Israel was a devastated wasteland. And it was just about to get worse as Jeremiah is writing, the remnant of Judah, who had survived the Holocaust 80 years before, are about to be completely decimated. The city is going to be leveled. The temple of Solomon is going to be completely, utterly destroyed. And all of the, uh, the survivors are, are going to be hauled off to Babylon. So there is a judgment that is pronounced on them for their faithlessness. But there's this promise of future redemption in the last days. A very important one is found in the book of Amos. And there's many, many, many of these. We could spend two or three weeks just going through the uh, passages in Isaiah that speak of this restoration of Israel. Uh, But we won't do that tonight. Okay, Amos. Here we go. Amos chapter 9. Now, Amos was written earlier. Amos was written while the northern kingdom still uh, existed, but their end was near. So we're going back in time a 100 years before uh, Jeremiah for this prophecy. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. This is in the temple now, Solomon's temple. And he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will kill the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them will not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it will kill them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Yeah, so this, this is this imminent pronouncement of doom on the northern kingdom of Israel. Skipping down to verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel? In other words, they're, they're not his family anymore. They're f- complete and utter foreigners. Didn't I bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, but I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Not the smallest grain will fall to the ground. This is, this is like the whole book of Hosea summed up right here in chapter 9, verse 9 of Amos. The house of Israel is going to be sown like seed among all the Gentile nations. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair it 
image. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So, see, the Gentiles are going to be brought into this in the last days. That's what Amos is saying. And here, verse 14 caps it off. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink wine. They shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. So this is what the apostles are talking about. Is it at this time, Lord, that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's going to bring back the captives of Israel. They've been scattered for 600 years into all the Gentile nations of the known world. And so, anyway, that's, that's, just, a, uh, that's just a smattering. And uh, at some future date, we can talk about the Tabernacle of David because that's a whole interesting study. That was different from the Temple of Solomon, but it was a much more accessible place where people could go right up to God's throne without having to go through proxies of the Levites and the priests. So that was a foretaste of the kingdom of God that would occur in the last days as well. So I believe that's what uh, that Peter is speaking of here in Acts chapter 2. Let's uh, read verses 22 through 24, please. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. All right, thank you. Now, he addresses them as men of Israel. This is how the Judeans talked to each other or addressed each other most of the time because they viewed themselves as the remnant of Israel. Judean was kind of what everybody else called them. But they were, the fact that they were an Israelite had a much deeper, richer meaning to them than the fact that they were Judeans by nationality. They were ethnically and spiritually uh, descendants of Jacob or Israel. And so we're moving, you know, one step closer here. But look at verse 23. The determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And then you read this essay that Darby wrote, I think, in the 1860s, saying that the cross was not a victory. It was it was the utter and complete defeat of all of God's plans. So how do you, and Darby, of course, was the predecessor to uh, Schofield in that movement. I just don't understand how you can reconcile Darby's view with Acts 2, verse 23, that Christ was supposed to be delivered up according to the purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, some of the translations say wicked hands, but the actual Greek word there literally means lawless. It it also meant wicked, but not in the sense that, that their heart was just evil by choice. It was this idea that they were outside the law of God. And, and so specifically what he's saying is 
the Judeans took God incarnate, God in the flesh, and handed him over to the Romans, who were men who weren't even subject to the law of Moses, and he was unlawfully executed. And so this, you know. Now, and then in the next verse, Peter's going to contrast this. You delivered him to the Romans, but God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So there, there's a, an intentional contrast between the actions of God's family, Israel, and God himself having to uh, step in and, and accomplish this. Uh, they both accomplished God's eternal purpose, but one did it by being evil, and the other did it by being perfectly good. So there's a great contrast there going on. Any, uh, any thoughts on this before we read the next uh, three, four verses? All right, well, let's I read. Darby was wrong. <laughs> well, uh, Darby yeah. was wrong. <laughs> Not handed and changed uh, or watered down his view later in life before he died, I don't know. But that, that writing just, which I found on the Internet a couple of years ago, it was just horrible. Okay, well, let's read uh, 25 through 28, please. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Okay, so the Psalms are also full of these prophecies of what God would accomplish in the last days through Christ. And David is speaking in the first person there. And he, it's like he looked forward and saw this and then, and then was glad as a result of it. But Peter, in the context here, is showing that David wasn't speaking about himself, about his own uh, physical body. He was speaking of the Messiah, who would be his also his physical descendant. The, the Messiah was, again, tied in closely to the resurrection and hope of Israel in Israelite thought. And we see that in this quote here talking about making known to me the ways of life. If we just recall the Gospel of John, that could be considered a whole book on the ways of life. And you will make me full of joy in your presence. Uh, this is, you know, again, the promise made to believers, similar to the promise in Joel, but done in a whole different genre and from a whole different point of view. So he's he's just giving a little speaking there. I'll go on now. Let's the his interpretation is better than mine. So let's just read it. Verse <laughs> nine through thirty three, please. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one 
of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. All right, thank you. Now, these events, recall, began in the upper room where they had been waiting since Passover, and and there's a reasonable probability that this was the very upper room where Christ observed the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper uh, with them, and they just stayed there uh, for these past 50 days. And an upper room in the first century in Palestine meant a room, a formal big dining room that was built out over a burial plot or a cave, typically. And we believe that all of these events took place down at the south part of the city of David on Mount Zion, just a few blocks from the Pool of Siloam, which we'll enter in uh, a few verses down. And the upper room would have been right next to these three burial caves that are right there grouped together just to the east of the Pool of Siloam. And so there's a very good possibility that if Peter's speaking from the roof, which would be logical if you have seen how the houses are built in that part of the city, it's so steep, they're just stacked on top of each other uh, in a staircase fashion. He would be speaking from uh, the roof of a house, which would be like the backyard of the house up the hill from it, um, and looking down to the street you know, below. He could literally just point to the cave uh, right there in their in their sight, uh, if that's in fact uh, the part of town that they were in. The tomb of David was known all the way up until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Maccabees had looted it, trying to take the city back from the Syrians 150 years before, and then Herod the Great tried to loot it, but was prevented by some divine intervention which is recorded in the uh, works of Josephus so it was there and known until the Romans destroyed the city and now they've uncovered them again but there's not much left there's just like there's like uh, you know 20 foot of one cave and about eight foot of the cave next to it and the cave next to it I think only goes in about four feet but anyway it, it all this is all extremely consistent with the archaeology of Jerusalem uh, and and quite a powerful spot for God to choose to inaugurate his marvelous work of restoring Israel. And again, the, the, the foreknowledge of God is mentioned and the resurrection of Christ, which again was tied in, the, the resurrection was the hope of Israel. All of these concepts from the prophets are all tied together and this spirit of God which flows in the father and the son now has been poured out on the believers who are the new corporate body of Christ so 
the eternal life that Christ demonstrated in his resurrection now is poured out along with the Spirit as part of the Spirit on the disciples. So this is what Israel had been waiting for. Okay, well, that's a good place to end for our study tonight. Thanks again so much, Mark and everyone. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.